Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hall, and I am welcomed by Lyle McDonald here today. Uh, hopefully all of you know who Lyle is. He has been on the podcast twice already, and we talked about refeeds and avoiding fat regain after a diet, and those podcasts went down very, very well, and you guys have requested Lyle to come on again. Uh, he's been very busy uh, authoring some new fantastic books, including the female book, and has been on tons of podcasts talking about that already and that isn't what we're going to be talking about today um, but I'm, I'm sure if you're interested in that you can go and well purchase Lyle's book and also listen to all the podcasts. Uh, today we're going to be talking about something that I think many of you will know about and some of you won't and that is Lyle McDonald's generic bulking routine um, which I think I've actually done in the past and I've used and I think it's a great routine and I don't think there are many great routines freely available online so it's nice that this one's here and uh, I think we could delve into it and find some great explanation behind it. So my first question to you Lyle is, well how are you first of all? Um, I'm fine. Uh, I, I mentioned before we started if people are having any uh, trouble understanding me. I had some dental work done, and so uh, there's a little bit of weirdness going on, but I will do my best to talk around this stupid mouthpiece. Um, you know, basically, I actually, believe it or not, have done a little bit of work on volume two of the women's book, which is going to be on training. Um, I have a tendency to take long periods of time between big projects, but this one I can't wait three more years, so I have been, have been delving into that, so that's keeping me a little bit busy. Hopefully it won't be quite as uh, complicated and uh, <clears throat> exhausting as the first one was. So, but no, everything's fine. Other than that, um, it's funny. I I very rarely actually get get asked to talk about training. Like my, I actually started as an ex in exercise physiology, but I sort of just got established as the nutrition and fat loss guy. So, um, training is something certainly that's always been you know a huge interest to me is actually what got me into this field because i was just an athlete that wanted to be better mm -hmm. and um you know like every 15 year old wanted to be big like every every 15 year old male that's ever existed so all, all that stuff was always of interest to me it just kind of got put uh on this uh the back burner um and so i know we we had talked about sort of that specific routine something i drew up many 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 years ago and i think maybe even sort of training across uh a career which is something you know I, I think isn't really addressed other than it's given very much lip service you tend to see a lot of what's online either rank beginners sometimes or very advanced and, you know, there's a, a joke, you know, everyone on the internet is advanced, yes. except that they're not, you know, and everyone thinks they train harder than any 10 men and that they are an advanced trainee. And that is usually not the case. Um, and I think you see a lot of people who are maybe reached an advanced level who are writers who are writing very much about their own training experience now. And I mean, it's, it's led all of us down a bad road back in the, you know, the muscle magazine days or new lifter. You see what some top pro is doing now. You go, well, I want to be like him. Endurance athletes do it too. If I want to be like Lance Armstrong, I'm going to do his training. Right. Well, he did, took him two decades to get to that plus everything else going on. And I think there pre pe people frequently miss, you know, not only a, a proper beginning training stage, which is really what sets your base for that important intermediate. And I would say most people online are probably closer to intermediate than not. By the time you get to advance, a, a lot of things are changing in terms of we talk about expectations. So, you know, we could maybe even start there uh, before we get to that. Because a generic bulking routine is very much an intermediate type of program. It's like, all right, I'm going to assume you've gotten through the beginner stage properly, which is often a poor assumption. Um, I, I've worked with people that have been training for 10 or more years and very more technically than anything, like had to take them back to almost the beginner stage wow. because it is possible to train incorrectly for 10 years. There's a lot of people that do it that very realistically could go back to, you know, maybe an advanced intermediate program, but certainly much less advanced than what they're using. And it's amazing. Suddenly they start getting results because they are now training, you know, there's, you'll hear people talk about training age and biological age. And like, you can have trained for 10 years, but if you were training like crap the whole time, you might still in some ways be a beginner. 
and need to go all the way back for at least some period of time. Um, it's also always funny to hear about these just these advanced guys who've been doing these crazy body part splits and supersets and this. And everyone's going to talk about going back to the basics, and they'll go back to how they trained, you know, in their earlier part of the career, and suddenly they start growing again. Huh. And I think there's lessons to be learned from that. So that's all stuff like we can possibly talk on, talk about. No, I, I think that sets the stage for a really exciting conversation. And uh, yeah, I often think about the names that we give them, like novice, intermediate, advanced, and advanced just sound so much better. And I almost wish they were called like young, middle-aged, and old. And no one wants to be old. You don't want to be an old lifter, so maybe well, that would help. Well, it, well, right. It's funny, you know. They they did that with marketing, right? It used to be like gold, silver, bronze, and then nobody liked oh, bronze. That's that's like the second loser. And then they sort of, they suddenly changed the names, and suddenly it was like gold, platinum, titanium. Suddenly the lowest level. And, and it's funny, but frequently just renaming it absolutely has that effect. So we're like, oh, I'm not a beginner, you know, I'm, I don't know what you would call it, but it's just like, no, think about it as you're an, accel- an accelerated potential trainee. Like you're in that stage where you can really make super fat and, and maybe, maybe you're right, maybe reframing it in a, a positive terminology would get people to stop being, you know, feeling bad that they're beginners. It's like, well, everybody started somewhere. Um, I think that's also a danger. You see this a lot of, uh, you know, trainers at gyms and even the people who write about it. We forget that everybody starts somewhere, right? It's really easy to be judgmental. When I did it, trust me, I'm no better than anyone else. When I was younger, especially. Like, it's really easy to see people online and go, how can you not know this? And then I look back at stuff that I did in my teens and go, yeah, that's how. Because <laughs> there's a lot of bad information and you, you can't know what you don't know. Um, but I, I do think there's so much negativity around being a beginner. Nobody wants to, to really go. And it's boring. Like the stuff you do as a beginner, and even as intermediate, it's not sexy training. You can't write an article every week about new techniques to use. And really, you just need to be putting in the time. I think if more people saw what top athletes in every sport did probably including bodybuilding they would be very bored by it yeah because it's there's there's rarely anything that special or fancy or complicated it's a matter of just putting in the work consistently over time that doesn't get website hits and that doesn't sell product and Mate, those aren't fun articles to read. They're not exciting. Not not at all. And actually, I think what might be a nice place to start, because we've kind of talked about the novice, intermediate, advanced. What? How are you defining these yourself, Lar? What? How are you naming each of these? I tend to look at it. I I know you know some people use like strength, um, strength gain. Mm Usually if they're very strength focused, I tend to look at it just mostly in terms of time of, of productive training. So like I would say a beginner has probably anywhere from the first day they're in the gym to maybe the six month mark of, of proper consistent training. And we'll, we'll kind of define what that means. You might stretch that out to a year. You know, I think if you look at, at probably the growth response, you know, and, and like Alan Aragon, Eric Helms, uh, I actually don't know who developed the model that they use and that I've just ripped off wholeheartedly. You know, they use a year one, you can yeah. gain, what is it, one to one and a half percent of body weight, and then in year two, it drops a little bit, and then year three. And I mean, these are all arbitrary cutoffs. Is it six months? Is it like, you know, usually within that year, you're going to make the fastest gains, again, assuming consistent productive training. From year one to year two, you're certainly an intermediate. And at some point, you know, you might divide between the beginning, uh, early intermediate, and an advanced intermediate stage. And a lot of that will be in terms of how much training you can even, like how much heavy training you can do in a week, you know, volume capacity. And then once you get to the two, I would say intermediate, you could run from one to maybe even three years. I think you can still see some pretty, you know, by year three of proper training, a natural any athlete is going to be getting pretty damn close to how far they're ever going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's that horrible asymptotic curve, you know, of if here's your genetic potential, that's my camera. Not on. There we go. Here's your genetic potential, you know, Oh, the results are amazing, amazing, amazing. And then by the time you're yeah. here, it's just that getting that last five or 10% can take the rest of your career. Um, which also has some, some implications for expectations we can come back to in the sense of, 
if your goal is to be 220 pounds lean, right, to be a super heavyweight bodybuilder, and after three years of productive training, you're still 30 pounds from that, you're not going to make it. Yeah. Not naturally, like just period, right? If you're an endurance athlete, if you're not cat one, if you're not category one, or getting close to it by your third or fourth year of training, you're not going to be an elite cyclist. Like I don't give, I don't care how many more years you put it. Like that's just the nature of, of adaptation. Um, so I would personally say, you know, zero to six months, maybe zero to a year is a beginner, and again, early beginner late beginner stage, you know, like the six month mark you're getting into some serious training from year one to year three, I would call it intermediate. And we might subdivide that, you know, year one to year two, early intermediate, year two, year three, you're should be getting pretty strong, getting pretty, pretty close to your limits from year three on assuming those two years, two to three years of productive, consistent training, I would consider you advanced. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be my arbitrary cutoffs, which, which fit with Alan and Eric's model in terms of, you know, what we could expect in terms of real world muscle gains. Yeah. Um, I think. No, I, I think that was a good definition. And I guess the thing I think you were going to define is the kind of productive training. Um, I think that would be really helpful for the listeners to actually know what that is. Cause I think some of them will think they're training productively and might not be. And then others will just be doing exactly that. Sure. Uh, yeah, the, the way I tend to look at it and this, this gets way back in the day, right? So early internet days, we're talking, late 90s, you know, when, when this all first started, and, and there was still this claim of we don't, we don't really know what makes muscle growth. And, even, and that was basically a cop-out to say you can do any old damn thing you want to do in the gym. There's a way to see I know what works for me version of that, which is just an excuse to say I don't give a damn what you think or what science says is right. I know what works for that. That's all that is. And even then we did actually know most, most of it. Right. There's a classic paper that I love to refer people to by Goldfink in, I want to say, the early 80s. And it was called The Mechanism of Work-Induced Hypertrophy. And it basically was what makes muscle grow. And in, a, in short, it was progressive tension overload. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you look at, you know, Brad Schoenfeld has a very recent review paper, well, recent, last four or five years. The man's so prolific, I can't keep track of one. He, well, he publishes a paper every week. And it's basically, you know, the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. And it's, you know, we know it's it's tension, like muscular tension overload. Fatigue may play a role in terms of metabolite accumulation, mm-hmm. et cetera, you know, eccentric muscle damage. And then the hormonal response is at best moderate. And just because I just want to be be like this, when I wrote my first book in 1998 on the ketogenic diet, the model of hypertrophy I basically put out was progressive tension overload, fatigue, muscle damage, hormones. So just I'm not saying Brad ripped me off. I'm just saying. <laughs> he didn't. We were just looking at the same data set, yeah. and this is what falls out of it, right? So, so, you know, we can quibble about sets and intensities and volumes and frequency, and we'll talk about that. But really, the key factor in training is not volume, despite what everybody is saying. And that's a whole separate podcast for me to complain about. This volume is king thing. Progressive tension overload, right? If over time, and I don't mean workout to workout, I don't mean set to set, I don't necessarily mean week to week. If over time, you are not progressively overloading the muscle, predominantly in attention, and yes, we can use volume overload, we can use density overload acutely, because like, Especially at the more advanced level, you can't just keep adding weight to the bar. Like you get to a point where, you know, if that were true, powerlifters wouldn't take 16 weeks to gain two and a half kilos on their total, right? You can't just keep using linear progression. Yeah. But for a while, you can do a lot of that. So to me, progressive proper training in this definition is, well, number one, you know, it's using exercises that are appropriate for your, for your body, that target the muscles done properly. Like, and, you know, even that, is a big place people go wrong. Yeah. Like I said, I had a trainee years ago. He'd been training 20 years. His technique on everything was awful. <laughs> I mean, nothing exercise done properly. He didn't know, I mean, it just, he, he was older than I was. He came up when there was no information out yeah. there. And we basically had to rebuild his technique from scratch. I mean, he was strong, he moved a lot of weight. And, and you see that, is you'll see a guy who's just heave hoeing the way and using yeah. terrible technique Maybe moving big weights, but they're like, why am I not developing? And you teach some proper technique, you cut the weight in half, and 
so they can actually feel their back muscles working or whatever it is. And suddenly you're like, oh, holy crap, I'm growing now. Yeah. Now, that brings up a separate, we can come, maybe if I remember to come back to it, about tension and weight on the bar and how they're not really the same thing, but that's sort of a sub-discussion I'll come back to. But the point of this being that, like, to me, productive training is, you know, training uh, consistently, uh, consistency, obviously, uh, but using proper technique with, ex- with exercises that are appropriate for you. And we'll talk about exercise selection a little bit. Probably would get the generic bulk and routine because that's where I make some changes to it. But training progressively over time, mm-hmm. right? Go into every gym. You can go in your gym today and just pick out some dude and look at what he's got on the bar and come back in a year, and it's probably the same way. That is not training productively. That is not training progressively. Everything else is secondary to that, mm-hmm. right? If your listeners are familiar with uh, Dante Trudell, dog crap training, yep. um, which kind of had a brief moment in the sun. I don't think it's talked about as much now as it should be. And among other things, right, he, he had a reputation for taking guys that weren't growing and getting them growing again. And he, he had a very, I know today he's, he's uh, I mean, a friend and as much as anyone on the internet is a friend, um, runs an excellent True Protein source, a pro, True Protein website. And dog crap, you know, it's based around rest pause, loaded stretching, some exercise variation, um, you know, some other things like that. And it was like, oh, my God, this training system is brilliant. And it is. It's very well thought out. But the big thing I think he did, he took a bunch of bodybuilders who were focusing on the pump and the squeeze and this and being tired, and he said, beat your records. His big focus was every day in the gym, you're trying to beat your previous weeks, whether it's the weight on the bar, whether it's the number of repetitions, no matter what it is. Hidden within his system was the key variable. Train progressively because mm-hmm. you're not getting stronger over time. You're not getting bigger. Period. So that those are really kind of the, the key variables to that. Um, so so and again, yes, you reach a point where you may not be adding weights. Certainly not workout to workout. Possibly not even week to week. It may be month to month. Possibly less than that. I think for bodybuilding, it's not quite like a strength power athlete, um, but it still has to be occurring over time. And I think if you look at the biggest natural bodybuilders, without almost without exception, they're very strong. Yeah. Right now, they may not be powerlifter strong, right? They may not be one rep maximum strong, but relatively speaking, for their body size, they're extreme. I, a guy in my Facebook group a couple of years ago that came up, and he was like, "I don't know, I'm pretty big. I don't think I'm very strong." I'm like, "Really? What are your numbers?" And he was like. Over 400 for reps in the squat, over 300 for reps in the bench, <laughs> over five. And I'm like, dude, that's strong. Go look at the average gym. Go look at the number of legitimate 315-pound, you know, 140-ish, 150-ish kilo bench presses that are not being made by behemoths. Like, yeah, there's there's the big 300-pound guys that it's still body weight or whatever. But, like, look at the number of legitimate 300-pound squats, the number of legitimate, you know, even close to parallel 400 pound squats for reps, that is strong. No, that's not an 800 pound powerlifting squat, but for a natural who weighs 180 to 200 pounds, that's strong as hell, mm-hmm. right? My old training partner, who was 5'5, five, five, tall and square, he was just a little fire plug. You know, I watched him do 315 by 20 in the squat. He singled over 400, he deadlifted over 500. Um, you know, Eric Hell, and, and you find that a lot of the natural, top natural bodybuilders cross over to powerlifting. There's a reason for that. Um, kind of just finishing this up, I have often found it ironic that powerlifters frequently grow better than bodybuilders. Maybe not so much in modern age, but certainly for a time, like you look at powerlifters, well, these guys carry some muscle, maybe not balanced depending on their routine, where it's like powerlifters were growing and a lot of the bodybuilders in the gym weren't. And I think the reason is that powerlifting has at its core progression. Yeah. The goal of powerlifting is to add weight to the bar over time. So many bodybuilders got caught up in the squeeze and the pump and just make sure they walked out of the gym tired that they forgot to add weight to the bar. And, you know, there used to be power building routines where guys like the focus was on heavy sets of five progressive. And then you did your pump work afterwards. We'll talk about that, too, because there's, there's much logic to that. But the guys who had progression built into their training were the ones who were growing. Which was the, and I just always kind of found, felt that was kind of ironic. It's like if bodybuilders 
trained mentally more like powerlifters, they would be growing a lot better. And I think that's why a lot of, you see a lot of powerlifters when they get sick of beating themselves up, switch to bodybuilding and just kill it. Because they're so freaking strong in low rep ranges that now they can use really incredible weights for moderate rep ranges. You know, you can squat 600 for a single, weight 405 for reps is kind of nothing. You know, that's one of your warm-up weights. So anyway, so that's kind of how I would define the long way around, you know, productive training. Appropriate exercise selection for you. Yeah, sufficient volume frequency, but progression. If you're not getting stronger over time, you're not training productively. Mm -hmm. I guess this is where some of the issues can lie with the more novice athletes looking towards the advanced athletes who can't progress with load progressively that fast. So they're sure. using these other techniques. So then Absolutely. the more novice people aren't chasing progression that they could be chasing and they're going for these wrong aspects for them because it's just not ideal. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it, you know, there's, there's kind of been this idea and I, Louis Simmons was probably one of the ones who kind of put this out there. They're like, Oh, you know, linear, the old linear progression, you know, the old, the old idea that you kind of started here and ended here didn't work. And a, it's not true. There's still a, a rather large number of powerlifters who train very much in that, in that fashion. If you, if you look at their routines, there's also the matter of time, right? Like, no, am I going to expect someone to add weight linearly to the bar for 12 months straight? Of course not. That, that's probably not realistic for a beginner might do it. Uh, most people will not. But what was law, you know, and this came out of all these old school annual periodization plans where you did a year to one peak. And then we started compressing that. And even the old 16-week periodization models, right, you would start with 15s and then go to 10s and then go to sixes and it didn't work for him. I don't think it worked for a lot of strength athletes because doing 15s in the squat doesn't help your max. Mm -hmm. Whatever, but over limited time frames, almost anybody can add weight to the bar. Now it may not be long, right? If you're an advanced guy, you're not going to have 12 straight weeks of adding weight to the bar. But if you can really get a good run up and apply yourself, you might do it for four to six. Right. So, so we start, I do think we start getting into differences of time frame between beginner, intermediate, and advanced. A beginner may very well add weight to the bar for six months, good for six months of their training. And it may slow down. They may get it for a year, depending. Once you get to the intermediate stage, you might only be able to do that very consistently for eight to 12 weeks before you kind of hit a wall. Once you get to the advanced stage, you might be able to pull it off for three to four weeks. Right? Even if you look at like Louis Simmons, the powerlifting stuff, the way they programmed max effort and dynamic effort worked, it was linear for three weeks and then they would drop back and they'd take a new movement or they would reset. Like for a few weeks, you can do it and then you might need that cycle. I think that even gets into a separate issue. I, I had I this theory. Well, it's a couple different things, right? Why can't we add weight to the bar every week? Why? In premise, if you're getting stronger, to some degree, like let's say you train and the next week you're half a percent stronger. In premise, you should, however, we are limited by a fitness fatigue theory, yep. whatever. I think we're mainly limited by the practical weight increases we have on the bar, right? If you're only able, if the smallest weight you can add is, you know, two and a half pounds, well, usually it's five two and a half pounds per side, one and a half, one and a quarter kilos per side, suddenly the weight on the bar, the rate of increase on the bar starts to rapidly outstrip whatever small strength gains you were making. Like I say, and of course we've got noise, there's variability in, in yeah. place. Like I realize your strength would never be going up, but you know, I think in premise, if we could completely match but you'd be dealing with, you know, a tenth of a percent added to the bar. You're dealing with not your, your unless you have completely, you know, meticulously weighed out weights. I think we run into practical uh, issues with that. Um, it's a separate question I've been thinking about. Somebody asked me, you know, why is it easier to add weight to compound movements than isolation movements? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. I think it's true practically because compound movements allow heavy weights so that the weight increases are a smaller percentage of what's on the bar. But in a bench press, like my chest gets stronger, my triceps don't, technically it should be harder because something's going to be limiting. Whereas if I'm doing a fly and my pecs are getting stronger, if they've gotten 1% stronger, I should be able to do more weight. But if the smallest weight increase on the stack is 5%, 
it will seem harder, but I don't know that it, like, I, I, I don't know if I completely agree with myself on this one yet, but I, I actually don't know if it's the case that it's easier with compound movements from a physiological sense. I think it's easier in a practical sense, but that's kind of getting it beside that. So the point of this all being that, yes, linear only works. You see these guys who are like, ah, for six weeks I'm doing volume. I'm keeping the weight the same, or I'm keeping the weight slightly submaximal, and I'm jumping my volume. Now that's something Brad Schoenfeld uses with people because he trains at advanced levels. Because you can't can't just keep slapping weight on the bar. I mean, even with microplates, and I used to have a set. I used to have, you know, my little quarter-pound discs and my half-pound and my three-quarter pound. And, like, they're great. I I still, they're great for female trainees. And, like, Mm -hmm. you can keep grinding out gains when you're only adding a pound to the bar for seemingly forever. Of course, when your plates aren't weighed out and the plates have a three-pound variance either direction, um, suddenly you don't really know what you're lifting, unless you're using the exact same plates or something. But, but yeah, so I think a lot of that is really an issue of time frame. And to your point, looking at what an advanced guy doing is like, yeah, for six weeks I am just focusing on, you know, squeezing and good muscular contraction and getting the volume in. They're at a point where adding five pounds to the bar every week it's just not realistic. No, definitely. And actually, I think, um, I wonder what your thoughts are on, I think it was Brian Minor who made a comment about when you add weight to the bar, that's not a requirement for progressive overload, but it's more a consequence of the fact you've been growing and you can now use that weight on the bar. Yeah, I've seen that kind of argued. You know, the, the, there's the, the, the one way to look at it is that adding weight to the bar triggers strength. It triggers the growth response. And others will argue that being able to add weight to the bar is a consequence yeah. of having grown. And I think that's – I see where they're going with that, and I think it's kind of just big semantics. But I do – I think it's, it's both. Right. It's like you have to challenge the muscle progressively so that it grows, which then allows you to use heavier weight, more volume, whatever it is, which then allows you to get another growth response. Like, I think it's I I would say it's hard to tell which part, which is driving which. Like, I actually remember Charlie Francis, right, the sprint coach talked about, you know, his, his sprinters all got very, very, very strong in the weight room. And he, and, and the idea was, oh, because they got stronger is why they ran faster. And he goes, no, actually, he believed it was the other way around, was that as their sprint speeds went up, like that, but I think it's both are driving the bus in a very cyclical fashion. It's like, yes, we have to overload the muscle till the point that it sees a growth response, which now allows us to overload it to a greater level, um, which will then drive a further growth. So I think it's just kind of a big, weird spiral upwards. Um, I do think it, it brings up the point, though, that there there is a point or you, trainees reach a situation where adding weight to the bar in the short term may not be the best way yeah. to apply progression or to apply overload, rather. Like, obviously, adding weight to the bar is progression, but you get to the point you can't do that, you may have to use other methods of progression, such as volume or shortened rest periods, which is density training or higher frequency or whatever it is, as a way to overload within the poundages you can currently use mm-hmm. to get the growth response that will then, so I can see it in that sense, certainly, from, from a practical standpoint down the road. Yeah, I guess it's more of a interesting thought for someone who is more advanced because that's where it becomes more important to have other, other elements of progression. And I think that, that, you know, I think that could get into a big discussion of like fitness fatigue theory. And then I've seen this addressed in like a lot of endurance sports, right? Because the old old model was super compensation. We train, we get tired, we get stronger. We train, we get tired, we get stronger. And that, that, in a practical sense, that works for beginners, right? You train Monday, you're a little stronger Wednesday, you're a little trained, you're a little stronger Friday. But we we kind of know that that's not really what's going on because it doesn't work beyond a certain point. And so you see the situation in endurance sports where they're like, all right, we're going to have to hammer our guys for two weeks. We're going to train them every single day. Like swimming does this. And they'll just bury them in volume within the speeds they can currently do to generate – hopefully an adaptive, you know, fitness response that's being masked by fatigue or how you want to look at it. And then when, and they talk about, yes, they did that long term, they'd eventually blow up, but you do that for a couple of weeks and you get this big dip. And when you cut the training down, suddenly they go back and recover. And we talk about um, sort of my advanced approach to specialization cycles. I'll touch on that again, but, but yeah, there is that situation where like, yeah, 
to be able to add weight to the bar in a month, you're going to have to bury yourself in volume or frequency or whatever as your acute overload. No, fantastic. And actually, you brought up a question that I wasn't particularly going to ask, but I've actually asked it to quite a few of the kind of Brett Contreras answered it recently. Brad Schoenfeld did as well. And um, Eric and Mike Isretel all have different viewpoints on whether kind of uh, functional overreaching is a beneficial thing or maybe even a requirement for some people for hypertrophy. And I'd love to hear what your viewpoint is on that, Lar. I suppose at a super advanced level, like I, I know I've talked to Brad about this and I know he will do that. I think you said it's like the end of his training cycles where he'll just for two or three weeks at the very tail end, he will just bury people in volume. Um, you know, I, what I want to say up to like 30 sets per week per muscle group, like, like really jack it up right before the very end, right before the tail end where you pull it back. I think that certainly has potential. I, I've always been more conservative with that. And I think this reflects, I think it reflects a difference between people who are training hands-on and people who are writing. If I want to train people hands-on, I will frequently do very different things than what I might suggest writing. Not that I'm giving different advice. It's when I write something, I have to predict how badly someone's going to screw it up. And after 25 years, I've got a pretty good idea. If I'm training someone where I can control the adjustments and when I have that control over it, the problem from a practical standpoint, if you tell someone, oh, if you bury yourself in volume for two or three weeks and then pull back, you'll get a growth response, they won't ever pull back. That's what I've just seen in a practical sense. Give me one moment. So I think practically the danger is people blowing themselves out of the water. I think physiologically they're certainly – at the advanced levels, and here we are truly talking at the advanced level, right, where you're, you're not making strength gains week to week, maybe even month to month. Mm-hmm. You have to find some way to truly overload the system, but you have to do it in a very intelligent, you know. If, you're, if you have the wherewithal and the ability to limit it to two weeks, tops, I think it can be very effective. The problem is you don't usually see the consequences of that immediately. You feel great for a couple of weeks and then you go a couple more weeks and then suddenly uh, the wheels fall off. Yep. Um, there, there's a piece I have on my website, something I did before I went to, to Speedskate, and it's called The Hardest Training I've Ever Done. I basically had six weeks. Uh, I had been an endurance skater and was moving to ice to uh, ice speed skating, which requires a lot more strength. So I had been weight training for a while, and I had basically six weeks to rebuild as much strength as humanly possible. And I knew that for about that long, I could destroy myself. So I basically, I lifted full body four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I did jump training on Wednesday and Saturday. I did aerobic training and technical stuff in the evening, and I took Sundays off. Every third week, I would drop the Friday-Saturday workout, and I made basically linear gains. Like, I started with probably the bar. Like, I ended up squatting, you know, 85% of what I had ever done best, but I knew from personal experience that I could tolerate that. that like, for six weeks, you can do amazing things, mm-hmm. and, and if you try to continue that, you explode or get injured or whatever. So yeah, for very short periods of time, I think absolutely that. And and it, it may not only be beneficial, you may reach a point where it's required. Yeah. Cool. I, I think that could probably debate, you know, that was um oh, it was a practical programming. I think, you know, was, like you used to see people write about, you know, you had your your standard microcycle of training and you had a shock microcycle Sith and Verkashansky's tried about that mm-hmm. into the double shock microcycle, which was like too heavy. But nobody ever really laid it out. It was this very conceptual thing. And um Glenn Penlay and Rip Tone, I forget who the, the third author was on practical programming, actually gave a practical example of how to do this. And it's it was really fantastic because it actually laid out and it was like two weeks of break in training, two weeks of just trying to murder your guy. Like literally just destroying him, and, and this is Olympic lifting, I believe. And then it was going to be four weeks before you were able to see whether it worked or not. And and that's the kind of training, you know, thing that you're looking at. And the problem is most athletes aren't patient, and bodybuilders, I don't know if they're more so or less so than everybody else, but you know, to tell them you can blow yourself out for two weeks, but then you need to take four easy weeks doesn't scan well. It's a very tough sell. Um, the same reason when Brian Haycock was developing hypertrophy-specific training so many years ago. 
the idea was that, you know, you trained higher frequency, lower volume, and that you use very sudden that only like one out of every six workouts was particularly heavy. And I said, it doesn't matter if this is the best way to train or not. Nobody's going to do it. I go, the most trainees are not going to accept that much submaximal work. Mm-hmm. They might now, because we've, we've seen a, a really radical shift in, in how people conceptualize training, at least online. But at the time, like, dude, bodybuilders know one way to train, which is go heavy or go home. If you're mm-hmm. not killing yourself, it's not a workout, go, you're not going to get most people to do this, which is ultimately the other issue. So more yeah. practical one. It is the reality, right? There's the, there is the, the issue of training. We can argue about the best, you know, you'll, coaches will tell you this anytime. You're better off having an athlete that believes in less than optimal training than an athlete that doesn't believe in the best workout ever because working harder on something that's not as good will work better than not believing in something that may be better. So that that's a big part of a lot of this. Um, I absolutely agree. I, I see it actually. And I think it, it might have been someone, it might have been Bryce Lewis who spoke about kind of you could give two trainees the same program. One could be from like a top class coach. The other could be like a generic program online. And the person with a top class coach would do better because they have belief, uh, which I think the psychology within lifting is huge. Oh, it's, it's true. It's so many things. There was, you're way too young to remember this. Back in the 90s, there was a, a nutrition and training program called Cybergenics. And it was basically a way to sell supplement line. Stuff was awful. Everybody my age tried it. The supplements were disgusting. And it was the most ridiculous training you've ever seen. Like, if you could survive it, I have no doubt that it worked. Like, one of the leg workouts was something like squat, eight reps to failure, go to the leg press, go to the leg extension machine, go to 20 box jumps. This is all on, like, no rest. And then repeat that four times. Like, that was a giant right but then they sold all these super expensive supplements to go along with it and a lot of it was like oh if you've invested the money in this you're going to believe in the training and it was like the training doesn't even have to be good if you work hard enough at within 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 realms um there was an old strength coach named i believe it was steve plusk and he was a collegiate strength coach you know we've tried every model we've tried every periodization scheme we've tried it all and what we found is the most important thing is to work hard consistently over time like you're, you know, you're, you're dealing with percentage differences yeah. over, over time. And that's, you know, a lot of the argument that's going on right now about uh, frequency and volume and, and all of this and all that and all the other to a degree is important in the short term. Like I think the short term responses will be better in terms of growth or strength for optimal versus suboptimal. And over a career, a lot of this stuff, because you're only getting as big as you're getting. You know, I believe it was Arthur Jones who said, by the time you can barbell curl 225 pounds, no matter how you get there, your arms will be big enough for anything short of wrestling a bear. And there's much truth to that, right? As if over however many years your training gets you to, what's your genetic limit or whatever, how much you can move for moderate rest, you're probably going to be better. Now, the issue becomes that not all training is going to be sufficient to keep you progressing towards that. But to a great degree, a lot of these things that we argue about they're fun to argue about. Yeah. However, it starts to kind of come out in the wash. There's too many different ways to, you know, and, and I, I've long looked at the commonalities of training. Like, okay, the successful training programs, what do they have in common? Yeah. Not what do they have that are different. What let's like not worry about the details, worry about the commonalities. And I think like if you look at all all successful diets, whether it's calorie counting, portion counting, whatever it is, get the person to eat less consistently yeah. over time and keep them full. Doesn't matter how you achieve that. There's different ways. Same thing. If you look at all productive training programs for naturals, throw drugs in the mix, doesn't matter. Take enough drugs, you'll grow. I don't give a shit what you do, <laughs> uh, honestly. But for naturals, like I said, if you look at the best natural bodybuilders, they're usually the strongest guys in the gym, or they're very strong. You know, maybe in modern repetition ranges, yeah. they're not. They're not powerlifter strong because they don't practice the skill of a one-rep repetition, one-rep maximum. But the weights that they're using for modern repetition sets are very, very, very heavy compared to most other people, and there's a reason for that. Um, and any, you know, regardless of whether you talk to myself, Mike, Brad, Brett, Eric, I think you'll find that every single one of us within whatever frequency, volume, intensity schema that we use, Dante, the goal at the end of the day is still progression over time. Yeah. 
right? Even without getting off on this rent, right? So Brad's papers are being held up as, ah, they prove that volume is all that matters. Well, that's true if you want to read the abstract. However, and look, I like Brad. Brad, I talk all the time. And this isn't a criticism of Brad. This is criticism of people I've read the studies. In all of his studies, there's two factors that are built into it. Well, three. Every workout is supervised. He pushes these guys to their limits, and they progress over time. Now, yes, within those three variables, volume starts to become a, a larger driver on things. But by that point, we qual all we've done is qualify that, well, within the context of proper training to begin with, yeah. which is showing up, working hard, and adding weight to the bar, volume plays a separate role. But these are the key factors that, you know, I, I will always take the guy, a guy doing two sets of 10 progressively over time, getting stronger, will make will grow better than the guy doing 10 sets who uses the same weight a year from now. I guarantee you, volume is not king unless we assume you know the things. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is king loss. So when you start to look at the commonalities, and, and there is a truth to it. If you don't believe in hypertrophic-specific training, I don't care how good it is, you won't do it. If you don't believe in my generic, and that's fine. It is one way, it is how I parse the data set at the time to develop what I thought would be optimal for the majority of people. And I realize there are outliers. Some people like a little bit higher frequency. Some people still like the one-day-a-week bro splits, which I used to not think much of, and I've certainly adjusted my opinion based on some of Brad's data. Um, even the meta-analyses are being kind of taken out of context right now. Um, and even Brad's original paper said twice a week was still better than once. Mm -hmm. The new studies, the new meta-analysis is that for strength, it doesn't matter if volume the frequency doesn't matter if volume is equated, except for compound versus single joint, uh, upper versus lower body, and women versus men, which way frequency, higher frequency was better, at which point I would say that the claim of no, no better is being stretched kind of its limits. <laughs> if higher frequency is better for compound movements, upper body, and women versus single, lower body, and men, well, then I got news for you. Higher frequency is still better under most, you know, and I will also argue that if we accept that adding weight to the bar and getting stronger is what drives hypertrophy or is a consequence of it, if a higher frequency means better strength gains, well, I got bad news for you. <laughs> then a higher frequency equals better growth down the road. Yeah. Anyway, we've got way off, way off topic. Yes, I do agree that those high volume phases done properly, those, those oh, you know, those that functional overreaching, it's just the athlete or their coach has to be very attentive yeah. and not let them and save them from themselves. Let's just put it that way. No, I, I actually want to um, reflect a little bit on one of the comments you did make because you talked about kind of the idea that volume is king for hypertrophy and that's the kind of what people are ending up doing and I'm seeing it like with people I'm interacting with and kind of younger trainees that I'm trying to help grow, they're kind of skipping a boat and they're just focusing on volume and doing loads and loads of sets of weights. And it's just ending up being junk volume and they're not aiming to progress and they're getting into a state of kind of panic when they're told you need to reduce this. And they're like, no, but volume's king. It's well, only if you're doing these things initially, exactly. otherwise it's not. Exactly. Yes. Um, you know, and, and that, I do really think that that is a message that, that sort of has been lost in all of that. Um, you know, and even there we can get into, you, even when you look at, you know, the papers that are doing, Brad has had really the, the luck of finally being able, excuse me, doing studies on trained individuals. Yes. And this is something maybe this will kind of bring us back on topic an hour into this, you know, starting about training across the career. We know that in beginners, everything works. It seriously doesn't make three-fifths of a difference what you have beginners do, like within the, the – or the differences are of such small magnitude, right? Whether you train at 50% of max or 90% of max, you get the same results. Whether you do one set or three sets, the, the results are essentially identical. Any gain from three sets, it's like 10% more gains in the short term. Two days versus three days a week, the difference is you might get a little bit more strength for, depending on the population size. Like this is always the problem with studies in untrained individuals. Mm -hmm. Everything works. And that, especially if you're looking at hypertrophy as an endpoint or even strength gains, most of it's occurring in that first six to eight weeks or thereabouts. It's mostly neurological. It's learning how to lift and whether, you know, multiple sets could be deemed superior because it gives you more practice, certainly. 
someone who's doing five sets or three sets of an exercise will probably learn it much more quickly than someone doing one. But by and large, the gains there are are being predominantly driven by, you know, neurology in terms of it's not muscle fiber recruitment, but, you know, just learning how to do the movement, coordination, all that, that stuff. Um, it's actually interesting on, on that note, an odd little paper I came across that I think has been, been, it's been shown a couple times. Right, because what do we hear? Uh, if you're a beginner, focus on the big movements, right? That's just de facto, and, and don't get me wrong, I think most people should probably learn those movements, but frequently they're not right for folks. And I'm sorry, but a lot of the quote-unquote big movements are, I think, crap for hypertrophy for, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'm going to write an article series, I've been planning it for a couple of years, called oh, Hypertrophy Heresy. Heresy, and I'm going to basically crap on most of the big movements that I don't think for most are growth matters. But anyway, what this paper found is it looked at growth response to either a complex compound exercise versus a simple isolation movement. I think it was squats versus leg extension. Don't swear me to that. And what they found was that growth started sooner for the isolation movement. Well, why? You don't have to learn how to do it. Yeah. My, I wouldn't do it. If I had a beginner who was just determined for me to work him over the first day, am I teaching him squats? No. I'm going to put him on the leg press and make him wish he'd never met me. I'll put him on the leg extension machine and make him want to die because there is no learning. There is no motor learning to a leg extension. There is no motor learning to an arm curl. There is no motor learning to a pat deck. If you want to, if you've got a beginning trainee and he's like, all right, I got four weeks. I need to gain as much muscle as I can. Pick the simplest isolation yeah. movements you can, because when the body doesn't have to go through neurological learning, growth starts sooner. Down the road, I think it, I, I think what also happened, like, I think in that study, I think the isolation group grew faster initially and then kind of slowed down and right. the compound movement started slow. You probably know the paper I'm talking about. It kind of picked up down the road, but it just kind of makes the point. And like, fine, do both. That gets into a whole separate argument about the paper showing that supposedly adding isolation movement doesn't increase growth, you know, over whatever time period in beginners. But whatever. The point is, if you've got four weeks and you need to get the most growth possible, you're better off not doing the, compl the complicated movements. And it may take me three weeks to, to get someone competent enough that a squat or a deadlift or a bench press to go particularly heavy. And I can do it day one on a pack deck. Um, or whatever. So, so you get into, I don't know why I started talking about this. Um, something about beginner training and, uh, volume. Oh, right. We're talking about sort of volume and, and kind of figuring out the, the fundamental stuff in terms of, uh, you've got a beginner and he wants, uh, volume is king. We're going to do two sets. No, 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 no. We need to start at jump ball yep. as a beginner train as a beginner. So maybe that brings us sort of the full circle to, you know, what constitutes proper beginner training? Like, what are the goals here? Now, if you're a 15-year-old, 16-year-old male, the goal is simple. I need as big as possible to get girls. Like, let's just call it what it is. We all did it. It's not a criticism. It just, it is what it is. Yes. That's whatever. There's a reason that, you know, those magazines have been aimed at that population every day. There's a new 16-year-old kid who wants to get big to, to get girls. It doesn't work like that, guys, by the way, um, if only it did. So but so, so, what do they do? They jump to advanced training. They jump into volume. They jump into what Arnold was doing at the peak of his career during his dieting phases or whatever. And, you know, and I think we can generally agree that be, the, the goal of the beginner is, you know, A, to develop consistency, work out, you know, that sort of the nebulous stuff is, yes, to learn – I, I do agree. I do think most people should probably learn the big movements to one degree or another. But part of that is also determining, are they right for you, mm -hmm. right? A lot of what I think beginner training should be about is not only getting consistently into the gym and, and you, know, you have to strengthen connective tissue and bones and ligaments. And, and I still think connective tissue is the forgotten tissue. Yeah. I, we talk about all of this. We talk about, ah, training frequency and volume and this, and that, and the other. And that's great when all you're focusing on is muscles. What happens when I get tendonitis because my tendons are never getting a break because I'm benching six days a week? Now what? Right? There are other things that I think are frequently go unconsidered because we focus so much only on the muscular response. 
So as a beginner, you are having to get conditioned to regular training. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is, is motor learning, right? Is learning how to train, is learning how to do the movements properly to, you know, to learn what the muscles are doing. Right. And I know even Brad's done some work, you know, on sort of internal and, you know, mind muscle length and, and, and it's kind of like, maybe, maybe not. I'm like, yeah, I don't buy it. Like, I don't, I don't kind of don't care that, you know, you need, you need to learn not only how to use the muscle in a given exercise, but to train it effectively, right? And I'm, he, he holding a barbell pearl around doesn't accomplish that. Now, yeah. Now, of course, people even turn that into either or. Oh, so what you're saying is I should just focus on squeezing the muscle. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's not an either or. I'm saying that progressive overload does not mean taking a strict concentrated barbell curl into that, Right. You're using more weight. You're not stressing the muscle more. Yeah. Right. So the this whole that's another one that's turned to this goof ass either or thing. It's, it's like no. And I think again, if you look at a lot of top odd top, you know, watch some of the big. Yeah, there are guys heating weights around that are big, but like look at guys that have great backs. There are these big bodybuilders that are using beautiful form yeah. with heavy weights. Well, there's a lesson to that. Like there's something to be learned from this which is they learn how to do the exercises to train their muscles effectively, but not to the exclusion of progressive overload over time. It's by the time that they went from being able to, to, you know, do one wheel aside on the hammer row in perfect form to four wheels aside in perfect form, their backs were huge, Mm -hmm. but they had, they spent the earlier part of their career figuring out how to fire the muscles effectively. What, and even what exercises fit your body best. Yeah. I think this is something that also gets lost in the, you know, squat or die or deadlift or die approach. The people who, who, who argue that are built for those movements by and large. Yeah. And I still maintain that the only reason that still exists is because up until the thirties and forties, there were no other options, right? I got a very silly article on my, you know, there's a picture of a guy doing a leg press laying on his back with a barbell hooked inside his boots. That's how you use the leg press, right? You would have to roll the bar, you know, you roll on your back, you put your feet up and you wore like a heeled boot, like a military boot, and you would roll the bar onto your legs and you do a vertical leg press. And you, but if you go way back, guys used to squat like that. Squat racks did not always exist. Literally, you would load a bar, tip it up on its end, you'd put it on your shoulder, you'd roll it onto your back, squat, 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 and then you would roll it off, right? Why aren't these hardcore knuckleheads, why not, why not go back to that, <laughs> right? Even then, people were trying to develop machines. People, the, only, the, whole, the whole tradition of bar, heavy barbell training, which I'm not against, don't hear, get me wrong, is because that's all they had for most of the time. Mm-hmm. Many will find when they get out of that that a properly made machine is maybe more effective for them from a growth response, right? Yes, if you're a power lifter, you have to squat. If you're an Olympic lifter, whatever, like, yes. And I'm not saying those are bad movements. Saying this idea that that they are the be-all, end-all of training for all people is an extremist approach. Mm -hmm. For many people, if you have bad levers, if you have long femurs or if you have whatever, if you have the, the mechanics of your squat are that you're going to be bent over doing a good morning, that is not a good lay exercise for you. And I don't give a shit what anybody has to say about that. It is not a good exercise for you. It's good for the people who are good at it. I've got short femurs. I can short squat very upright. It's a great leg movement for me. I'd still rather leg press because, well, I'm old and brittle. Um, but regardless, it's like a lot of the beginning stages, that first year to six months, is yes, learning how to train consistently. Learning to train intensely, mm-hmm. well, training intensely, that is a learned skill. This is something else I do think people forget, is you have to learn to exert yourself. Yeah. Now, this depends on the person, right? The average 15-year-old knucklehead male, he'll go in and he'll probably just try to murder himself. But learning how to train intensely, it is a skill, especially to avoid your form breaking. Um, things. This is all stuff that, that needs to happen progressively over that sort of beginner stage, right? So what I would say, you know, the, the typical guidelines, although I recently saw someone recommend something, you know, as a beginner, you don't need a bro split. You don't need a body part split. Everybody does that. Why? Well, that's what, that's what all these top pros do. They're using, they're hitting every muscle group once a week. That's not ideal to learn mm-hmm. the exercise. 
you need more frequent exposure. If you're squatting once a week, you're only getting to practice that movement once, no matter how many, and if you do a lot of sets, you're probably doing a lot of very bad sets. Mm -hmm. If you're squatting three times a week or bench pressing or whatever the movement is, the more frequently you do it, the faster you'll learn it and the more quickly you'll get, you know, and that's if you look at, we knew this for years. This was like the, the beginner program for a billion years. And then Rhea and the, the Rhea meta-analyses that looked at strength and you're like, oh, beginners should use an average intensity of 60% of max training three times a week for anywhere from what is it, one to three sets. It's like, yep, fantastic. Like in that sense, the research said exactly what everybody kind of always knew. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I got no, and, and that's really how, as a beginner, I do think you should be training, you know, whatever exercise set you do. And some of that's training specific. You know, if I'm working with a mid thirties woman, I'm probably going to use a machine setup. If she's got no previous movement background, if she has not, you know, if she's already a little bit, uh, concerned or intimidated by the weight room, the last thing I need to do is give her an exercise she's going to be not do well or be very self-conscious about doing. I'm not teaching a back squat out, out of the gate most of the time. Now, if I've got a 25-year-old ex-gymnast, and they're a joy to work with, if you ever get this, if you ever work with people who've never been in the weight room but grew up doing, like, dance, gymnastics, any kind of movement stuff, oh, they're easy. You just go shift your weight back a quarter of an inch, and they know what that means. Like, it's just because – but even that kind of goes to the point. All, everything they did early in life has trained their nervous system, and that's really what we're doing, especially in the first couple of months of tracking, right? So for beginner let, – let's focus on beginner males because, let's face it, they're the ones who want to get big and jacked. Yeah. Every most – that population, let's be realistic, 16 to 22-year-old males. Right. If they go in and just start doing a ton of sets with as much weight as they can, they've already screwed up. Right. They, they have basically missed a critical, a critical phase of training where, A, they can make great progress doing very little. Right. Because the studies show whether you're at 60 percent of one rep, which is something you could do probably 20 reps with, or 90 percent, you make the exact same gains. So you might as well use the lighter weight. Use proper form figure out, you know, focus on what the muscle is doing, get, con you know, and I would say the same thing for any beginner, right? If again, I've got a 35 year old woman who's never been in the, the last thing I need to do is beat her up her first day because yeah. she's never coming back, you know, not unless I get the check signed first. It's a joke, by the way. Um, I know somebody that used to do that. I was like, how do you get them to come back after you beat up on like, it's like, Oh, you got their check. Oh dude, just, just dude, just don't tell me that. Um, but yeah, if you can get away with less, do it. If the gains from one set versus three sets are the same, the gains at sixty percent versus ninety percent are the same. Do the do the lesser amount. Mm -hmm. And there's several reasons. One is is just that practical sense of it allows you to use a higher quality of training if you're new to it. You know, get broke break, broken in without breaking. Very important for beginners. I've got a series on my uh, website called Train the Obese Beginner where I talk a lot about this. Um, also, you know, there's even there, there's more issues of exercise selection. You know, you, there's things that I see 160 pound personal trainers and they're like, oh, I do walking lunges. Yeah. I've been doing this for and they have a 300 pound overweight beginner and I'm just like, oh my God, why are we failing our clients so badly? Um, you know, Start. There's also the issue, this, and this gets into the volume side, is, okay, fine, we can quibble on whether there's an upper limit of volume above which, you know, supposedly, well, Brad, well, there's, there's research, I guess, forthcoming that may raise, answer some questions we've had about upper limits of volume. Finally, because I, I admit a lot of the work that's been done is not in advanced trainings. We know that, you know, even Brad's stuff is like, ah, 10 plus sets per week, we didn't see an upper limit, but the data's not there. Yeah. Right? Is 20 too much? Is 30 too much? Where is it individual? Like, we know that there's a limit, there's got to be a limit somewhere, but we don't really know where it is. However, there is a practical limit frequently in terms of how long you can be in the gym having a life. And one thing that you see if you look at, at like long-term athlete development, like sports stuff, not bodybuilding, but like performance sports, uh, I should give you some hate now, you know what I mean, is they're like, if you use advanced methods, if you use high volume early on, okay, what do you do in two years? 
if you, if as a beginner, you're doing 20 sets per muscle group, well, when you plateau, now what? Hi guys, thank you for listening to part one of this episode with Lyle McDonald. I hope you've enjoyed it. There is much more to come, as you know from Lyle. He has so much experience, so much to tell, and we have another episode coming for you shortly. Please, as always, if you can leave us a review, leave us any comments, leave us any kind words, that's always appreciated, and we will catch you soon. Revive Stronger.